All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation 17. If you've got a Bible, it's a last book in that Bible, Revelation 17. And I know some of you are here visiting. You came here, you're excited to see Madison get dunked in the water. And now you're gonna get dunked in Revelation whether you like it or not, because that's, that's where we're at. We're, we're in Revelation. I know it's where you've, you're visiting a church that's going through the craziest book in the Bible. Only crazy in that it's the most mysterious and the most misunderstood book in the Bible. It's a collection of visions, one vision after another, all telling us one basic story. And that is what God is doing in Jesus Christ and through his church during this whole age from Christ's first coming to his second coming. That's what we're seeing. And today, we're picking up in another vision in Revelation 17. Pray with me before we begin. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, to believe your word, to respond to it in faith and repentance. We pray, God, that you would change us through the ministry of your word and the working of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a little kid, I got beat up a lot. Shocking, right? So I was a really little kid with a really big mouth, so sometimes I had it coming. Um, But I moved from uh, West Chicago with my parents. We moved to Geneva, the mean streets of Geneva, Illinois, right here. And, uh, of course, we were in the hood, you know, the east side. And uh, so we were, you know, grew up in this town and uh, was excited to meet new friends. And what I found was that everybody hated me. Again, some of that might have been fair. And I got beat up. I got beat up a lot, right? And uh, and there was really nothing I could do. You might wonder, like, why don't you hit them back? Because I didn't know how. And there were a bunch of them, or they were bigger than me. And, uh, well, why don't you just go to your friends? Maybe your friends will stick up for you. That would have worked if I had friends. I didn't have friends. So, uh, and when I did have a friend, I would have one, and he was just as big of a dork as me, so it didn't really help at all. Then they just had two people to beat up instead of the one. So um, not a lot of luck there. And what I found was, is like, listen, I, it was pretty simple. I didn't have the power to overcome my enemies. I didn't have the skills, the, you know, the strength, and I didn't have the support that I needed to help me get through that either until, until years later, uh, and this went on for years, uh, but until years later, I actually learned how to defend myself. I learned how to fight, and, and I, I grew stronger, and I got some friends, and they were the kind of friends that you read about in the Bible, like the kind of friends that Jesus says you should have, greater, there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. So I had friends that would sacrifice themselves for me. They would get in the way of harm for me. And that's ultimately when it finally came to an end. And I think about this chapter that we're looking at today and really what we see throughout this whole book of Revelation, and that is that there is a great enemy, a powerful adversary who wants to destroy you. That is the devil. And not only is he after you, he is after us. And it's not just him, it's him and the fallen angels and the people of the world that he uses for his own purposes. And when you think about like, I'm supposed to stand up against a devil, like the devil, and his power as it is manifested in the world in various kingdoms and and movements and forms of wickedness? How am I supposed to do that? And 
the reality is, is you cannot. You are like me as a kid, an easy target. You have no hope of overcoming the devil on your own. But what we're gonna see here is this. Here's the principle for the whole message. I'm not gonna give you five. I'm not a great preacher, so you're not gonna get like three points that rhyme and smell good. You're gonna get one point, okay? There's one point in this whole message, and it is this. Jesus promises victory to his people over Satan and his power in the world. That's what I want us to get. In this vision, with all of its dramatic imagery, Jesus promises victory to his people over Satan's power in the world. So what we see in the first two verses of chapter 17 is sort of a big picture. What's, what are the players involved in this vision, right? Because these apocalyptic visions are, are big and sometimes frightening. And here it is. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Yeah, <laughs> There's a, it's a big picture. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty overwhelming, but let's just try to track with it, right? And we're going to keep this simple. We don't have time to go deep into the weeds and spend all kinds of, we don't have hours and hours to spend breaking apart all of the details, but I do want us to understand the vision itself and what it means. So we have a woman, a prostitute. Later on, well, she will be identified as Babylon. There's this woman who sits on a beast. It's a scary image. This is not a good character for us. But this is introduced, this woman on the beast is introduced as those who are about to experience final judgment. You see, this vision that we're looking at right now follows after the vision of seven angels pouring out God's seven bowls of wrath on the earth. It's the depiction of the great day of the Lord, the final day of judgment, when God's patience runs out and his wrath is fully manifested, the day that Jesus returns. And so here it's like the angel says, hey, listen, John, that's the one who's recording all this. John, I want you to, I want to zoom in. I want to show you something because the day of the Lord is coming. I want you to see what's going to happen to the woman who sits on the beast because she faces judgment too. She's seducing kings, we read. So she's having influence over leadership in the world. Whoever this woman is, she's influencing leaders and she's leading earth dwellers, that's everybody else, to drink her drink and get drunk. She's not just influencing leaders, but she's intoxicating the world with the wine of her immorality. That's how it's introduced. And then it continues, and we get a little bit more information about this woman on the beast in verses three through six and then verse 18 as well. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. It just means like, okay, so now he's sort of transported in his mind to the desert for this thing to unfold, this dramatic picture that God is giving him to understand what's happening now and what's going to happen in the end. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great 
mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. John is overwhelmed at what he's seeing when he sees this woman. She's seated on a beast. Now we're going to get to the beast next, so just stay tuned. But she's seated on this terrifying creature, but she's dressed beautifully. She looks good. She's attractive, right? Even in the way that she's described in, in the clothes and the colors and the jewelry, and she's holding this, this cup. But the cup is full of abominations. That is blasphemies and idolatries and immoralities of every kind. And that's what she gives to the world to drink. And drink we do. Because, well, why wouldn't we? Look at her. She's magnificent looking. It's enticing. It's tempting. She's leading us and we're happy to follow. And her name, in a sense, we see in verse 5, is Babylon. And on her forehead was written the name, big forehead like me. On her forehead was written the name, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This is essentially her saying who she is. She's not ashamed. She's not hiding it. She's just presenting it in the best possible way. She is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes. Now, some people, I just, because I know some people have concerns that the Bible, especially if you're not familiar with it, you, know, you, you hear things like, well, the Bible is misogynistic and it treats women poorly. Actually, if you read the Bible and what the Bible has to say about women, it really exalts women unlike any other literature throughout its time period. It dignifies women. It exalts women. It shows their strength and their, their abilities and their piety and their faith. And in the book of Revelation, there are two women featured, symbolic women. These are not real women. One woman represents the church. That's in Revelation 12. She's beautiful and strong. She's pure. But now we have this woman, Babylon, and she's immoral and unrighteous all together. She is the mother, the matriarch of sin, blasphemy, and idolatry. She has offspring, in a sense. And she's called Babylon. Now, if you're, if you're a little familiar with Scripture, then you, you've, you've heard that word a lot, especially, you know, Old Testament pops up in the New Testament as well. Babylon was a great world empire. And during the Old Testament period, Babylon became an enemy of Israel. And there was a time in Israel's history when there was division and there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel was called Israel. They must have called it first. I don't know how it worked. And then the southern kingdom was called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem was and the temple was. And it was Babylon who conquered the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, and took God's people into captivity. Babylon represents the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. In fact, Babylon became known as a symbol for idolatry and wickedness and corrupt rulers who persecute God's people. And this woman is Babylon. This woman is the work of the devil in particular people groups, rulers. I mean, what we're seeing here is that there is a 
people in the world that are different from the people that are in Christ. Notice I didn't say in the church. Because in the local church, you have a mix of all kinds of people. You have people who know and love the Lord, and you have people who don't. You have people who are seeking and asking questions, who haven't arrived at a place of faith. You have other people that are pretending to be something that they're not, and they're actually hypocrites. We can be honest about that. But those who are in Christ are different. They are changed. They are purified by Christ. So there are those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. If we talk about those in the church being pure, we're talking about not just local assemblies, but the church of Jesus Christ, those who have been regenerated or saved. So here we are. We see this woman named Babylon. So what is she? She is the sinful people, the city of man that stands against Christ and therefore stands against his people. This is the, the sinful city of man that tempts us and seeks to lure us away from the truth, from Christ. Their goal is for us to be led astray from our confidence in Jesus. And this sets us up for a spiritual battle against an enemy, the city of man, where we live, what we're a part of in one way or another. A lot of times people ask me, hey, what commentary should I read in the book of Revelation? There's a lot of them. I usually recommend two. One that's more technical, a little harder to read, is by G.K. Beale. This is commentary on Revelation. But the one that's more readable that I recommend mostly to people is by um, Hendrickson and Kistemacher. It's the New Testament commentary series. So it's a series of commentaries on the whole New Testament, book of Revelation, Hendrickson and Kistemacher. Listen to what they write about this particular city, this woman. There are two cities in the apocalypse, that is in the book of Revelation. One is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. We're gonna read about that later. And the other is the city of the world controlled by Satan and known as Babylon the Great. These two cities have their own citizens, they have their own rules and laws and their own destinies. The one is a city of light, the other a city of darkness. The one is known because of its purity, the other because of its deceit. In the one, God and the Lamb dwell with their people, and in the other, Satan, the fallen angels, and their followers reside. That's the woman on the beast. What about that beast? What are we supposed to do with it? And this beast is going to be explained here. In fact, the angel gives the vision and then the angel begins to explain things, explain what is seen. And the, the beast is explained first, technically. We actually don't get an explanation of the woman that rides on the beast until verse 18. The beast comes first and it's probably because the beast is more important than the woman in this particular vision because the beast fundamentally represents the power of Satan at work in the world. So if the woman represents the city or the people, the beast represents the very power of the devil at work in the world. And we read about this beast if we continue. The angel says, why do you marvel? I will tell you, this is in, in verse six. Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. Here we go. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was 
and is not and is to come. That's such a nice, clear, and clean explanation. Don't we all feel better? Thank you, angel. What a great commentary you've given us on that crazy vision. Now, the angel continues to un- unpack this, and so let's just try to track with the, the explanation as far as it is given. This beast has seven heads, right? We see this in verses 9 and 10. This calls for a mind with wisdom. We're going to come back to the he was and is not and it is to come. This calls to mind, verse 9, uh, wisdom. Seven heads. These seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also seven kings, Right? Here's what, here's what people do with the book of Revelation. They go, okay, seven heads are seven mountains. There are seven hills in Rome, so it's probably referring to that, but it's also seven kings. So then they try to identify seven kings in their particular time period. And of course, where do you begin and where do you end in, in naming the kings? It all becomes rather subjective, and in time, you quickly miss the point of the revelation itself. So we're not playing those games. A better way to understand that is that this, these are symbols that are giving us a picture of what the devil is doing in the world, but where it's all going, which is judgment. That's the promise throughout. There are seven heads that are seven mountains, which are seven kings. More than likely, this is just a reference to earthly kingdoms and rulers, the power of the devil in the world, the beast upon which the city of man, Babylon, rides is seen in kings and kingdoms throughout our days. Notice there are seven. We've already established this, that the number seven is the number of perfection. In other words, we're getting a picture of of seven heads because it represents the perfect number. It means all of the kingdoms of man, all of the cities of man that work against God, that come against his people. That's, That's what's represented here. So this is the danger. And we can see that, but some have come and gone in this vision. But then there is one now and there will be another in the future. Because the kingdoms of man come and go. They all come to an end eventually. And then another rises up and the devil is at work in all of them. I mean, not America though, right? Because we're the good guys. Devil can't be be at work in America, right? Many of the bad interpretations of Revelation makes America the center point of their eschatology. We're not playing that game either. And listen, I'll just go ahead. Like, we don't preach politics here. We preach the Bible. We preach the gospel. We preach the word of God, the knowledge of God, theology, and all of that. You want to talk theology? Hit me up after church sometime. I'm talk uh, politics. Hit me up after church sometime. But I will tell you this. I have a deep fondness for this country. I'm not embarrassed to say I love our country. I'm so appreciative and I marvel at our constitution. I think it's a thing of beauty. But it's not the word of God. And in fact, part of my love for this country is what makes me hate the evil and the satanic corruption that is in our country. We should be able to see all of it because we've been given eyes to see. There's much to love and there's much to be fearful of. There's much to be horrified of wherever you live because the heads of this beast represent the rulers and the kingdoms throughout our days. By the way, this beast, we'll go back to it now, this beast who was and is not and will be. Jesus is the one who was and is and is to come. He's forever. 
He's always. He's eternal. There's no beginning, no end. But this, this beast, well, this beast is different, right? The beast was, but then is not. But he's going to be again? You see this in verse 8 as well as verse 11, the beast that, verse 11, the beast that was and is not. It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it's going to follow. It's going to come again. And the big idea here is that, and we're going to see this again in Revelation 20. The power of the devil was let loose in this world when sin entered But with the arrival of Jesus, the devil began to be defeated and restricted and bound in a a variety of ways. And with his resurrection and ascension, the devil is more limited than ever in his ability to deceive the nations because the spirit of God accompanies the people of God as we preach the gospel across the world. But Revelation 20 tells us that there will be a time when Satan is no longer restricted or bound and he is going to wreak more havoc than ever in the end, just before the last days of judgment. And so these, this beast, he was. Right now he's not, not like he was. But in the end he will be for a short time. And then we read about these 10 kings in verses 11 and 12 And listen to how the angels explain it. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So again, it's heading towards this day of judgment. And the 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. So just get the picture, right? Again, there are rulers yet to come. It looks like in the end, in the last days, the very, we're in the last days, but in the very last days, before Christ returned, for a short period of time, the devil will release greater power on the earth through the beast. And there will be some sort of cooperative effort throughout the kingdoms of man to suppress the truth, to attack Christ and his church. It will be a short reign because there is war and defeat in verses 13 and 14. And here we begin to find hope. In verse 14, it says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called chosen and faithful. This is all going towards judgment, but as we're looking towards judgment, we're seeing that it is the enemies of God and his people that are going to be judged. Then the devil and his power are on display here. In fact, it's helpful for us to see that part of the way that God brings destruction to this beast and this satanic power is by turning the beast against the woman who rides it. Look at verses 15 through 17. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, those are the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the languages, that's everybody, that's the whole world. And the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They've been working together, lockstep, 
hand in hand. But somehow God will bring disorder and disunity. He will frustrate their plans. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. How is this going to happen? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, in all the chaos and confusion in our world and with all of the destructive power of the devil and that power that's given to kingdoms and movements, God never loses control. He's bringing it all to an appropriate end where justice is served. This is the vision. It's only at the end of this explanation by the angels that we get an explanation of that woman. So just to circle back to it. Oh, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of earth. It's the city of man, the power of the devil at work seeking to destroy and devour not only the truth, but God's people. And that really is the point. Part of the point of, of, of Revelation 17 is for you and I to know that we are going to be attacked, that we are going to suffer for the cause of Christ. And people are generally attacked in one or two ways. One way you're attacked, and all Christians are attacked in this way, is through temptation. Right, the woman on the beast, she's got her cup. She's trying to get everybody drunk on her idolatry and in her immorality. And man, is she appealing. Man, does this sound good? Doesn't it look good? Doesn't it look satisfying? And she holds out the cup and people line up to drink. We're tempted, yes, by the devil. Yes, through the world. But there's another way in which we are attacked and that is through persecution. So everyone's tempted by temptation. Some people get both. Like our, like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They're suffering both. And knowing this, that this is what we are in store for now until the end, what we need is confidence and encouragement that comes from God's mouth. We need his words. We need his promise. We need to know that we're going to make it, that we're not going to be overwhelmed, that we have the support that we need to overcome our enemy, right? We have to know that Jesus promises victory to us over Satan's power in the world because without it, we know that we are ruined and we will give up. So what do we do with this? With this cursory understanding of Revelation 17 and the vision, the woman on the beast, horns, attacking the people, tempting the world. But that beast and that woman are heading towards judgment. What do we do now? Here we recognize that we are called to fight. We have to fight. We have to engage. Now, how can we fight? If we know that we don't have the power in ourselves or the skills to overcome this enemy who is more powerful than us, then how do we fight back? I'm going to give you five ways in which we can begin to fight against the devil and his plans and his schemes against us in the world today. So the first is this. If you're going to fight spiritually, if you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, you have to know the devil's schemes. 
right? So you, most of you know, if you're regular here, that I don't know sports ball. Um, I, don't, I don't understand sports in general, but, uh, but I do know a little bit about like football because I used to watch it with my dad growing up. And I know that in football, uh, teams have playbooks, right? And these playbooks are strategically designed plays that their team uh, will use to conquer their enemy, the opposing team. And the playbook is oftentimes uh, strategically, uh, or I think probably always, strategically geared towards a particular team. And so it's a big book. It's got all this information in it. If the opposing team has your playbook, they got your number. They're going to know what you're likely to run first. They're going to know what your, what your strategies are. And they're going to be able to more efficiently whoop on you. How are we supposed to get the devil's playbook? Well, there's a lot of good resources out there that we can read. One is Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, It's a classic Puritan uh, treatise that you can read. But I just want to give you one simple way in which you can start this, right? If we're going to know his schemes, really all you got to know is what your weaknesses are. Because that's where the devil focuses. Your weaknesses. I mean, why do you think you're struggling with the same sin you struggled with 10 years ago? Really? Maybe in part, it's because the devil knows you're weak there, so his strategy's focused there and he never lets up. And of course, this doesn't mean that you can't have victory there, that you can't overcome it, but it helps you to know the, 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 the greater degree you, of, you have of, of, in understanding your weaknesses and your frailties the better equipped you are to fight back against the devil because his schemes will in part target your areas of weakness. So start there, that's number one. And just for for reference, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter two, verse 11 says that uh, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. And this is something that Paul says at the end of an exhortation for us to forgive Right? In other words, like, listen, we, we know that one of the designs of Satan is to appeal to our pride. Why would you forgive that person? They hurt you too bad. You would never have done that to them. Don't forgive them. Walk away. Kick the dust off. But we know that Satan appeals to our pride. So know his schemes. Number two, if you're going to fight the devil, you must resist him by resting in Christ. Now, a lot of people just say, well, just, just resist the devil. Right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We read that in James 4, 7. Okay, but how do you resist the devil? What do you do, flex? Like literally, what do you do? But let's look at the whole verse in James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And it goes on to talk about the confession of sin and all of that. So here's the idea. If you are going to resist the devil in his attacks, you must first submit to God. And submission to God is fundamentally relying upon him, resting upon him. And in what way? For his grace, for his mercy, for his forgiveness, for his acceptance. Because if you don't have those, you have nothing. We have those in Christ. You want to fight back, you have to resist the devil by resting in Christ. This means that you have to be a gospel fluid person. You have to understand the gospel. You have to appreciate the gospel. You should be schooled in it to the best of your ability so you know where your hope and your confidence lies. Number three, if you're going to fight back against the devil in the world, you're going to have to find God's strength. You have to find God's strength. You know, you don't have the strength to conquer the devil. You don't need to be afraid of Satan. 
but you are not a stronger creature than him. You are lower than the angels. But we read in, um, in 2 Corinthians Let me go back. Let's just go to, we'll go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 and 11. If you're following along. Finally, be strong in the Lord. It's not just an exhortation to be strong, is it? Be tough, toughen up. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You can't fight the devil or temptation by physical resistance. You can't trust in your own power and strength. You must find it in God. And I would encourage you to read all of Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, to see the rest of his explanation of the spiritual armor of God. But you have to give yourself over to the Lord in order to find his strength. You have to recognize your impotence before you can experience God's power. Number five. Nope, number four. (laughs) I went too fast. Number four. Uh, If you're going to fight, you need to fight spiritually, internally, not externally. Not in a worldly way. Now, listen, there are many fights that we have to have in life. Sometimes you've got to fight other little kids when you're a little kid because you have no choice. Um, sometimes you've got to fight things politically or socially, right? These are not violent situations, but they are fights. But our fundamental, most important fight as Christians and as members of Christ's church and family is a spiritual fight. And it should get most of our energy and attention. Unfortunately, many of us tend to spend most of our energy and attention fighting worldly battles while forgetting the spiritual. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't engage in all of the fights that we face. We have to. But there ought to be a priority on this because if you begin to fight and win the spiritual battle, you are better suited for all of the other fights in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verses uh, four and five. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Not political opponents. Strongholds. Every, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is spiritual warfare, taking every thought captive to Christ that we would not be led astray by bad thinking, by wrong believing, by bad doctrine, that we wouldn't be so tempted by an appeal for an easier life that we will abandon the life that God calls us to even when it's hard. We're fighting against these strongholds, these ideas and principles that are idolatries, that take root in our minds and in our hearts. To fight that, we have to know the truth. We have to know that we're fighting for faith. It's a deeply theological fight. Number five, 
Finally, if you're going to fight back, if you're going to resist the devil and find the victory, experience the victory that we're promised, then you have to fight with confidence. If you don't have confidence, you're not going to fight at all. Not cockiness. Jimmy and I, Pastor Jimmy and I were at the UFC fights, Conor McGregor's most recent fight. He went in a little cocky. Did you notice, Jimmy? He did a little bit. If you don't know, Conor McGregor might be the cockiest fighter who's ever lived. Um, And uh, yeah, it didn't go so well for him. (laughs) Cockiness is not what we're looking for, but we ought to be confident, right? Why? Last, last verse here for us, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Like, I don't, you mean I, I don't have to be afraid? No, God's, God's going to guard you against the evil one. So when I engage in fight, God is my shield? Like he's my fortress? He's my protector, my defender, my salvation? Yes, he is. That gives us confidence to actually engage. If you don't have confidence, what do you have? Anxiety, fear, a lack of certainty, a lack of will. Jesus promises victory to his people over Satan's power in the world that we all have to face. Whether you're a Christian or not, or not, you have to face the power of the devil in the world. There is evil in the world and it's aimed at you. But there's also evil in you. You see, you could take away the world you could take away the devil and there would still be evil because you're here, because I'm here and we still need rescue. We need redemption and it can only be found in Christ, the son of God who came, who walked among us, who fulfilled perfect righteousness on behalf of all of us who have not. He died to atone for our sins. And he rose from the dead to give his life, demonstrating his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And everyone who looks to Christ is rescued, redeemed, and cleansed. And we have divine power. We have the assurance that even though we will suffer for a time, even though we know that that we have to face the enemy, we know that his doom, his defeat, his destruction is certain. So we look forward to the end, knowing that God has it mapped out and that we will be victorious, vindicated. But we also know that today he gives us the strength and the grace that we need to persevere against our attacker, to actually walk with the Lord in faith and righteousness fighting spiritual battles that we might represent Christ and proclaim him to everyone else who is enslaved to this world that they might be set free just like we have been set free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us beyond this time that you would help us to see our need for your grace and help. Lord, that we would see that we, that we, we need Christ for the salvation of our souls, but we need Christ also for our perseverance in this world. We pray, God, that you would
revive our hearts to walk in your ways and to preach Christ, the victorious Savior, and to preach him earnestly that all might hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.